Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. Your host is Michelle Beck. Our show is here to help breast cancer patients, survivors, thrivers, their friends and family by providing resources, support, and inspiration they can use right now. Here is your host, Michelle Beck. Hello and welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. I'm Michelle Beck. I am a two-time 10-year survivor of breast cancer. I'm the patient programs assistant at Breast Friends of Oregon. And when I have time, you can find me on social media at I Never Liked Pink. So today, my guest is Michelle Sherry Cruz from Cruz Law in Lake Oswego, Oregon. And we're going to be talking today about something very important. And we often use the term adulting, when things we don't really want to do, but they're super important. And this is one of those because we are in a talk about how to plan, how to and why it's so important to plan your estate. And Michelle Cherie has kind of broken this down into five W's and we're going to get into all of this today. So Michelle Cherie has more than 26 years of law experience in estate planning. She's been a juvenile peer court judge, a mediator, an arbitrator, a negotiator. Previously, she was with Anderson Consulting. She's an author, author, a frequent guest lecturer, sits on a variety of nonprofit boards, and she is a wife and a mother of two lovely grown children who are out in the world doing fabulous things as well. And I know Michelle Cherie because I used her for my own estate planning services a few years ago, and she made the process so easy for me who no one really wants to do this, but she literally lays it out and says, this is what, and this is why. And my husband and I feel so much more secure in what we've got. So Michelle Cherie, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you so much for your very kind words. Well, it is all very, very true. And what you do is super important. And I, I cannot say enough about how happy I am that I have it done. And since we've been prepping for this episode, I've literally been telling like all my friends, do you have this done? Do you have this done? Why don't you have done? And I like, you know, okay, here's where my binder is. If anything happens and here's who's taking care of my kid. And then there's the panel. So there's all these good things that you've helped us accomplish. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, as you relate, it's kind of a really big topic. And it's a topic that's not a fun topic to talk about, but it's an ever so important topic. So my goal today is to make sure that everybody that's listening or watching knows that you've got this. You can totally do this. You can start small. You can do more extensive. Just start in some way. I promise you, it's like going to the gym. You'll feel better for it. Well, and definitely, and it really, I think, is vital to those who've been through a cancer diagnosis because you don't know what's going to happen. While many, while most of us get through a cancer diagnosis and everything is is good and we move on, that doesn't happen for everyone. And even if even if you don't have a, a trauma going on in your life, you could go out tomorrow and something could happen. So it is always so important to be prepared. Right. That's very so. Tell us a little bit about yourself other than the law and what, what gets you out of bed every day? God. I'm a carpe diem, seize the day kind of person. I um, love being interested and trying to be as interesting as possible. I love meeting new people. I love gaining new experiences. I love knowing when I go to bed at night, I'm a different person than I was when I woke up in the morning. So that's what kind of energizes me. And I'm originally from New York. And yes, guys, this is me on decaf because I love <laughs> my personality that's good on caffeine. 
So, um, kind yeah, of a listeners, Michelle Cherie is, is definitely an A type and <laughs> she gets right. it all done and is still very polite while like motivating you to get your stuff turned in. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I, I work with, I try to honor the different learning styles of all my clients. Some of my clients are really great auditory learners and they can sit through a podcast like this and just absorb and feel very comfortable. I've got clients of mine that are really great literary learners. I make sure to always follow up with some sort of written correspondence. And then a lot of my clients are visual learners. So they like to see people face to face. And I draw out pictures. I send YouTube videos. And the reason is, is that everybody's capable of absorbing the information. They just may need to hear it maybe multiple different ways, but maybe one way would really uh, strike a chord with them. Well, that's perfect because we're really just going to get started now. So when a new client comes to you and says, I have no estate in place, what do I do? Where do you begin? Yeah, first thing I do is I say, wash away anything that you've been told. And the thing, the reason is, is that how many of us have come across somebody and you say, oh, I'm going to Portugal. Oh, I'm pregnant. And everybody has their two cents as to what you should be doing, right? And then what ends up happening is a lot of times those individuals are well-meaning parents, but your parents' planning can look and feel a lot different than the type of planning that you need. So what I ask you to do is just kind of let it go and then let me kind of guide you through the process. I call myself a guide by your side. And the reason I want to do that is that I don't want you to start off that appointment saying, I want this or I need this. Because a lot of times when you do that, you're not really sure what those documents are or even why you think that you need them. I'd rather give you kind of a lay your land, act as kind of like your legal travel agent, show you the various places that we can go visit. And then together we can decide what speaks to you and where we should go first in order so that you don't feel overwhelmed. And you have used the lovely metaphor of a bicycle. And I always thought it was funny when I first met you because you start with the back wheel. What is the back wheel and why do you start there? Thank you. Yeah. So I do use the metaphor of estate planning being like a bicycle. And the reason I came up with that metaphor is that so many people come to see me and they say, I want this. I need this. But as I said, they may not know what those documents are or even when in their lifetime they might need them. And so since there's a lot of legal ease that goes into estate planning, what I want to do is I want to bring that terminology down to something that everybody can identify with. So everybody's either ridden a bicycle or seen a bicycle. So most people have two wheels of their estate planning bicycle broken up as to when they might need some assistance. They might need some assistance during their lifetime for an incapacity issue. So they might need somebody to stand their shoes to make a medical decision, a financial decision, transmit medical records electronically, deal with a digital asset, or maybe you're the parent with minor children and everything's fine with you. You just might go on a date and you might leave your son or daughter in the care of somebody else. If that child needs to be medically evaluated or treated, there's a document here in Oregon called a temporary guardianship affidavit that needs to be signed by one parent in the presence of a notary, naming either one person or one couple. So for example, if Michelle and I were sisters, we're both Michelle's, except I'm Michelle Shree, I might name Michelle as a temporary guardian on a temporary guardianship affidavit. But then if I had, let's say, a nanny, or our parents were coming to visit, they would be on a separate temporary guardianship affidavit. Think of it like babysitting instructions on steroids. You can have mm -hmm. as many of these in existence at any one time than you want than you need. 
It does have to be signed by one parent in front of a notary, and it can last as short as a day or as long as six months. So those are the back wheel, and there are five documents, which we'll go over in more detail a little bit later in the podcast. And that's where I'd really want you to start. And the reason is, is that I've been practicing for 26 years, and thankfully, and thankfully for my clients, very, very few of my clients have passed away. And when you pass away, you need one of your front wheel of your state planning bicycle documents. You either choose door number one and you pass away with no planning at all. And that's when you pass away in test date. And we'll talk about that. Option number two is you pass away, but you leave some kind of instructions to the courts. And those instructions can be a will and a will can have various trusts within it. And option number three is to do a revocable trust. So the front wheel of your state plane bicycle says somebody's passed away and we need some sort of direction. The back wheel says you're going to live forever, like most of my clients do, but there might be a hiccup in life and you might need somebody to stand in your shoes or assist in some way to make those medical decisions, financial decisions, transmitting medical records electronically or dealing with a digital asset. Each wheel of your state plane bicycle runs absolutely independently. So if I have clients, and most of my clients, honestly, Michelle, as you can probably relate to, they have more balls up in the air than they have hands. There's just stuff coming at them all the time. And if you say, oh, well, I need all this information, you have to process all of these documents, they might say, you know what, I've tabled adulting for with a lot of success for the past 45 years. I think I'm just going to give it a little bit longer. But I'd really rather you say, you know what, I've got this and I can check one thing off of my 2020 to-do list. And that's going to get to get these incapacity documents in place. And then maybe in 2023, we'll pivot and we'll do the front wheel. And maybe you might need a tricycle. And the only reason you might need a tricycle is maybe you have business interests. Maybe you're married to a non-U.S. citizen. Maybe you're here in Oregon and you have larger life insurance policies. And if so, we can add additional wheels to your bicycle, but you can definitely take a very successful, safe journey with just one wheel. So I always recommend that you start with the back. It's it's funny. I was talking to my sister about this the other day. She's a bit younger than I am. She's in her late thirties, but she has a, um, she's done wonderful for herself in the past few years, but she's never done any of these documents. And she's yeah. going in for a major surgery next week, her first one. And I told her, I said, okay, you have a best friend who's an attorney. You need to figure this out. And before you go in, you need a, um, the two, one of the two basic or two of the two basic incapacity documents. I said, you need the medical power of attorney and you need the financial power of attorney. Exactly. And her response was, well, you're my life insurance beneficiary. Doesn't that count? I'm like, no, that, I mean, and this, she's a brilliant woman. I'm like, no, that does not count. And I, I don't want to forget, can you quickly cover, and we'll just do it now, those two documents, the power of attorneys and, and yeah. what they cover? Yeah. So there's a couple of pieces that you kind of highlight with that. You can never be too young or too old to do estate planning. So I do documents called minors one day and majors the next for kids that are 18 plus that go off to university because a lot of parents forget that once their child turns 18, that child is now an adult in the eyes of the law. And so you could no more make medical decisions or financial decisions or deal with the university or transmit a medical record or deal with a transcript that you have to move between school to school then you can stand in your spouse's shoes. It's not automatically if you're married. And it's definitely not automatic if you're the beneficiary on somebody's life insurance. Mm-hmm. So even if you're 18, I think there's a good set of backbill documents to do. 
I think even if you're close to 90 or 100, I think it's good too. So I had this woman come into my practice and she sounded super young, super spry when she scheduled her appointment. Eight o'clock comes in and these two women come in, twins, they're in their 70s. Neither one of them my client. And I said, oh, are you Sally? They're like, oh, no, Sally's our mom. She's coming (laughs) to my office four miles. She sits down in her chair and she goes, so, hey, the girls say I'm old. And they said, I need a well. What do you think? Well, there's no (laughs) answer to that. Because I don't want to say that, oh, gosh, you're in your 90. It's probably a good idea to do this. She goes, well, I I said, do you mind me asking? How old are you? And she said, 96. Holy moly. So not a bad idea. And I tell her the story of uh, Henri, who came to hear me present at Charles Schwab, and he waited five years, and he calls, and he says, Hello, Michel, it is Henri. I heard your lecture five years ago. I'm old. I need an estate plan. And so I mentioned this to her. I said, and he lived to be 96. And while Sally had great legs about her, her hearing wasn't so great. So all she heard was the 96. She goes, ooh, is he still available? And I'm like, <laughs> young girl, right? Kind of love that. So... For those incapacity documents, I want your 18-year-old to do, and I want you to do, even if you're married, or even if you are a beneficiary person on someone's life insurance, there's a document here in Oregon called an advanced directive. Every state has some sort of medical directive. And those directives look and feel a little bit different, depending on where in the country you are. But here, that directive would allow you to appoint somebody to stand in your shoes to make a medical decision allow doctors to talk to one another, authorize a medical procedure. And I'm sure many of you have seen those type of documents. You've gone in for an elective procedure. They usually have you complete one of those documents. Unfortunately, a lot of clients believe that once they complete it with a hospital, the hospital retains a copy of it. And in fact, they do not, right? They have it there for that one procedure. I think maybe better for you to have a global advanced directive that you keep on your person and a copy up on the cloud that's applicable no matter where you treat. So if you do take that trip overseas and you're going to Portugal, you got your advanced directive. If you're at the coast and you have an allergic reaction to something, you've got your advanced directive. Our advanced directives can be different. They can be spring and non-spring, which means that you might need two doctors to sign off the incapacity. And some advanced directives say, as soon as you need somebody's help, they can go ahead and be there for you. So you want to look at that as well. The HIPAA document is a sister document to the advanced directive, which you didn't mention, but one that I want to highlight, which gives those healthcare agents in your advanced directive the opportunity to be able to transmit your medical records electronically. Some advanced directives in some states have that HIPAA language included within. Some of them do not. So those are the two medical documents. I think you should scan those two documents together. Make sure that you've signed that document, depending on the formalities here in Oregon, it's in front of a notary or two witnesses and get your healthcare agents to sign. Then you should notarize that HIPAA document, scan them together, keep a copy up on the cloud. You should have a copy readily available and give copies to your primary care physicians. The last document, the Durable Power of Attorney for Finances, which you alluded to, is incredibly important. How many of us have had to fight with Blue Cross Blue Shield, I shouldn't call out one insurance company, but any insurance company, because they want to make sure that something's covered before that elective procedure. If you're not well enough to have make that call, or if God forbid it was a car accident, it was a fender bender and you need to file a PIP claim, 
or you're getting on that plane to Portugal and somebody's maxing out your credit card and you want somebody to put a fraud alert on that credit card. There's a myriad of reasons. You might need somebody to stay in your shoes to make a legal or a financial decision. The durable power of attorney for finances would be one such document. And after we get back from the break, we can talk about where that document should live and who should receive copies and when it could be used. Perfect. Well, Michelle Cherie, I literally, I'm just like, I've been through this process and I know it all in my head is like, oh my gosh, there's so much. (laughs) Well, thank you. Listeners, we are going to take a quick break. If you would like to help Breast Friends continue on its mission to ensure that people do not go through cancer alone, you can donate on our website or text BF Radio to 41444. You can go on our website, breastfriends.org. If you or a loved one need our services, please go to patient programs and If you're looking for Michelle Cherie, you can actually go to cruiselaw.com, K-R-U-S-S-L-A-W.com. So stay with us. We will be back in a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to continue our mission that no woman goes through cancer alone and to keep the show going. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can text BF Radio to 41444 or visit us at breastfriends.org to donate. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon or follow us on Instagram at Breast Friends PDX. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. The team at Epic Sciences constantly strives to push the boundaries of medical technology, finding vital answers to personalize and transform healthcare. Define MBC is a liquid biopsy test from Epic Sciences that evaluates key biomarkers such as ER and HER2 status to help create care plans for patients with metastatic breast cancer all through a blood draw. If you are interested in learning more, please visit definembc.com. Younger women with breast cancer face unique challenges that their older counterparts do not. The iRise Above Foundation provides young women with targeted, age-appropriate, and integrated health and wellness resources, along with tools that enable them to rise above the residual effects of breast cancer so they can heal and live well. iRise connects young women with breast cancer to a community of like-minded thrivers with the same goals. Go to iriseabovefoundation.org for more information. You are tuned in to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Michelle Beck at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Thanks for staying with us. I'm Michelle Beck. My guest is Michelle Cherie Cruz of Cruz Law in Lake Oswego, Oregon. And we are talking about how to adult and get your estate planning done and the many reasons why. So, Michelle Cherie, before break, we quickly spoke about the, um, I know it's not the right wording, but the financial power of attorney. And 
where should that live? How do you how do you keep that? What's the best place to 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 really have that available? Yeah, thanks for asking. So here in Oregon, we call it a durable power of attorney for finances. Durable. And the question becomes this great question, where should it live? I mean, so many people believe that the best place to put it is in their desk drawer or to put it in a fireproof safe somewhere in the house. And while I think that's a lovely idea, the problem is that's not very readily accessible. So maybe it would be better, like the physician advanced directive that we talked about in the HIPAA before, that you scan it and you put it in a secure place somewhere on the cloud that you can download easily. I also actually recommend that you create start creating a 72-hour kit. And in your 72-hour kit, maybe you create a thumb drive. And on the thumb drive, maybe you have copies of your social security cards, maybe your birth certificates, maybe the title to your house, maybe some insurance information, maybe your last year's tax return, but also put copies of these documents. And the reason is, is because if you have to grab and go, it's very likely that if you get to a shelter or another safe landing spot, you might not have grabbed your computer, you might not have grabbed that file, but you will grab that duffel. And in that duffel, you'll have the thumb drive and on the thumb drive, can you access that information? The question becomes, do you give a copy of your durable power of attorney for finances to the people that you named in that document? We have a lot of conversation about that during the drafting process. And the reason is it's a really powerful document. And this comes up over and over and over again when I meet clients, especially older clients. They're concerned about the abuse of that document. Who actually confirms that they're incapacitated and that those agents should step up and have access to their checking account and update beneficiary designations or create estate planning documents or revise estate planning documents. And so that's why we spend a lot of time talking about one, choose the people that you really trust to be named in those roles Two, maybe let those people know that you did a durable power of attorney and who has copied, let's say me. And if you become incapacitated, they have to reach out to me and then we discuss, I try to find out if you're truly incapacitated and then decide how are we going to utilize this document? Am I just going to provide it to the agent that's asking for it? Or is there an entity that's needing to give that agent permission and I can provide that undercover to that entity, limiting their use of that power of attorney to just that one hypothetical? Right. So you, if you need to send it to Bank of America to get them access to this or... Right. Yeah. Right. So that and is then very- I also include a cover letter that you can include with your durable power of attorney to your agent, kind of specifying this is how I want you to use my documents and this is what I forbid you from using my documents for. That's perfect. Now in the beginning of the conversation, we mentioned that there are different things. There's a will and a revocable trust. What are the differences there? Because a lot of times people incorrectly use them interchangeably. They do. Um, so we're now pivoting to the front wheel of your estate planning bicycle. So the back wheel member are those documents that you're going to need, a durable power of attorney for finances, a physician advanced directive, a HIPAA, maybe digital asset worksheet, and a temporary guardianship affidavit if you have a child that's under the age of 18. So now this person has now passed away. They no longer need that back wheel. So now we're pivoting to the front wheel. The front wheel, you have two primary drafting tools at your disposal. Behind door number two is a will, and behind door number three is a revocable trust, which will also contain a will. And that's part of the confusion, is people say, well, wait, I don't understand. If I have a revocable trust, why do I also have a will that goes with it? In a will, door number two, you are now leaving a set of instructions for the court saying, this is who I am, this is who I'm married to. If you are married or in a partnership or a long-term relationship with somebody, or if you're single, These are my children, if you have children, 
And then you get to start naming people that can step up to do specific roles. Within a will, you can also have various trusts within them. So, for example, the state of Oregon has a very low threshold. It's the total amount your state can pass down to children. So somebody other than a non, a U.S. citizen spouse, there's a limit. So you can do tax planning within a will. If you have a minor child or even an adult child and you don't want them to receive that outright distribution the day that you die, you can do a trust within a will. All of those instructions that you've left in a will need to be activated. And that activation has to occur after you pass away with a court involvement. And that court involvement is called the probate court. So what would happen is your will would be submitted to the court. The court would say, oh, I see you named this person called a personal representative. In some states, that person's called an executor. We're going to go ahead and give them permission to start closing down your estate, make a publication in a local newspaper, let creditors know they have four months in which to contact the estate for reimbursement, file a death tax return, start to collect up all those assets. So all those things are happening and the courts are involved. With a revocable trust, assuming that you're very careful during your lifetime about retitling things into this revocable trust document and also pointing certain assets to the revocable trust through beneficiary designation. If you're very careful about doing that, then those assets can pass to your spouse or to your children, whomever you want them to choose without that court involvement, right? So you could do that same type of trust planning for taxes in a revocable trust and in a will. You can uh, plan for minor kids in a will and also in a revocable trust. The difference is a revocable trust assumes that you've done a very good job at making sure to title things correctly so the courts don't have to get involved. And this way, the assets that you own on date of death can pass to the people you want them to pass to immediately and privately with no court involvement. The reason that a revocable trust also has a will that goes along with it is twofold. One, it's in that will that we address something called guardianship, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And two, this will is called a pour over will, like pouring a cup of water into a glass. And the reason is, remember I said, you gotta be careful. You gotta make sure that everything you own is either owned by the revocable trust or has been pointed to the revocable trust. Inevitably, we forget something. If we forget something, we want the opportunity to be able to pour it over into the revocable trust with very little court involvement. We do that by having this auxiliary document called a pour over will that says, mea culpa. I meant to put this into the revocable trust. I forgot to put it into the revocable trust. Please give me permission to do that now so I can let the revocable trust control the distribution of that particular asset. So essentially any time that you, if you say you buy another home or you have a new life insurance policy, does that get added to the will to get poured over the trust? So no. So if you do a revocable trust, what you'll do is with beneficiary designation, you're going to say if there's a distribution that needs to be made for that life insurance policy, then do it pursuant to the revocable trust. If you buy a house, you'll probably buy the house in the name of the revocable trust. And if you don't, then we can always transfer the title. So a lot of times clients come to see me, they already own real property, but they have no estate planning documents. So what I'll do is after the revocable trust is drafted, I will retitle their home into the name of the revocable trust. That portable will actually doesn't come into fruition unless you've forgotten something. 
And if you've forgotten something and you've passed away, that's when we can utilize that additional tool to make sure we can pour that asset into the revocable trust. With a will, and this comes up quite frequently, people send me a long list of everything that they own, but all they want to draft actually is the will. They don't want a revocable trust. And the reason why it's great information for me to have now, that picture, that snapshot of what you look like now may not be what you look like in 10 years or 20 years. And because a will actually doesn't hold anything, it just acts as direction so that when you pass away, giving this person the personal representative the opportunity to acquire everything that you own on date of death at that time, I actually don't need a listing of all your assets when you do a will. But when you do a revocable trust, it's so much more important. Now, you have mentioned a personal representative or otherwise known as an executor. What is their their real position and does it need to be or can it be an attorney or a family member or a friend? What is the what do you take into consideration when naming that person? Great question. So I divide my appointees into three different categories. There's this category called a personal representative or executor. And that's an administrative job. It means somebody is willing to step up straight away if somebody passes away to work with me to close down their estate. Category two is this guardian. And I talk about guardianship being like an Oreo cookie, which we'll talk about too. And three, there's this person called a trustee. Who makes a good personal representative? I ask if at all possible that the personal representative be somebody younger than maybe 80 years of age because it's a a, a detail-oriented job. And I'm not saying if you're over the age of eight, you're not capable of doing it. It just may not be a job that you want to do. Two, I think a personal representative would be better suited if they live in the United States than if they live outside the United States. Three, if you have minor children, I would really like to see the person that you named as your children's guardian, the person that your children would live with until they're 18 years of age, be somebody different than the personal representative. And the reason is they will both have the jobs at the exact same time. And I'd rather have your sister and brother-in-law or your mom and dad totally focused on raising your children, making them comfortable, getting them acclimated in a new home, maybe a new school district, and then give that thankless job of working with me to help (laughs) close down your estate to somebody else. I jokingly say when I see the same person named, and this happens so often, where a couple will give me or an individual will give me their pointy cheat sheet, and I'll have the same name for all the roles, this one person. And I jokingly say, oh my gosh, you must love and hate David equally because you gave him all <laughs> these I think it would be a really great idea if you allow David to pass that baton to somebody else. And this would be a good place as personal representative. You know, probate can be as short, normally not as four months. It could go as long as three years. So you have to have somebody who can work that into their work schedule as well. And maybe somebody that lives more locally would be a really good idea. Question you asked was, can it be a family member? Can it be a friend? Can it be an attorney? The answer to all that is yes. There are attorneys that are willing to act as what's called corporate fiduciaries or personal representatives. There are banks that have fiduciary departments. So if anybody's interested on how do you go about interviewing somebody for that role of personal representative or trustee, I'd be happy to send anybody a memo. If they want to pop me an email, I'll send it out to you on Monday. Perfect. And so we talked about minor children and guardianship. That is obviously so important. We put together all of our planning a few years ago, and my son was, I think, eight at the time, and he's now 11. And 
we have named guardian and backup guardian, et cetera. But we've also talked about something. Um, I know there's, we talked a little bit about the temporary guardian where you can have like, that is from a few hours to six months. Mm-hmm. How, what is the proper label for a permanent guardian in case something happens? And then I know there's also a guardian panel, which my, I told my son about that recently because he's getting older and I know enough to be dangerous, but he could be with a chosen group of individuals to decide where is the best place for him to live. Absolutely correct. So you have correctly labeled all three levels. <laughs> Good job. So um, the top of your Oreo cookie are these permanent guardians, the couple or the individual that you feel most comfortable with raising your kids until they're 18 years of age. The issue is often those perfect people may not always be perfect. So maybe you're thinking about naming mom and dad, but they would be really great choices as long as they could serve together. And if something happened and your mom wasn't able to become a continuous guardian, leaving just your dad, he may or may not have the bandwidth for being guardian on his own. Or maybe you name your sister and brother-in-law, but if they get divorced or separated, you would want to choose just your sister. And if it was just your brother-in-law, you're kind of on the fence. Maybe, maybe not would be a good idea to continue on. Maybe there are people that would be really great choices as potential permanent guardians as long as your kids are under the age of 10. But once they're 10 or better, a whole new group of individuals or couples become better choices. So what I ask couples to do is to please give me a list of their fate's choices for permanent guardian. But then be thinking about, well, what happens if the permanent guardians don't remain perfect? So that's where the guardianship panel comes into fruition. You might say, I choose grandma and grandpa unless either one of them are 75 years of age or better. If they're 75 or better, then I choose the guardianship panel, a panel made up of family members and friends of my choosing who would come together at that time, including a child of ours that's 10 years of age or better, to decide should our minor children remain with either grandma or grandpa or have guardianship switched to another couple of your choosing. You might say, I choose my sister and brother-in-law, but if they get divorced or separated, then I want the guardianship panel to come together to decide if our child or children should remain with my sister or my brother-in-law or have guardianship switch to somebody else. Or you might say, the guardians can be my sister and brother-in-law jointly or individually. I'm fine with either one of them. However, if our kids are 10 years of age or better, rather than choosing this couple, if not this couple, then this other couple, I want to go straight to the guardianship panel made up of my kids and all these different couples and let them come together at that time and choose amongst themselves based on what they know at the time, what our child needs in a potential guardian, what our potential guardians are capable of, where our child wants to live. Because so many of my clients think about, oh, well, we've got three kids that need guardians, but that may not always be the case. You might have two children that are off in university and only one child that needs a guardian and maybe the two that's off in university they're setting in New York and maybe a potential guardian lives in New York and your youngest child wants to live closer. That's not somebody you would ever have considered initially because you wanted your kids to be raised in the Pacific Northwest, but now that's a better option. The the stuffing of your Oreo cookie are the paid places that your kids can land until a permanent guardianship can be decided on. And when we get back from a break, I'd like to tell you a funny story. I love it. You're like doing the whole break situation for me. That's perfect. (laughs) Thank you. So listeners, we are going to take another quick break. If you would like to be my guest here or nominate yourself, submit your warrior story for me to read on the air. You can reach out to me at Michelle Beck at breastfriends.org. Stay with us. We'll be back in a minute.
Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to continue our mission that no woman goes through cancer alone and to keep the show going. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can text BF Radio to 41444 or visit us at breastfriends.org to donate. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon or follow us on Instagram at Breast Friends PDX. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. at Epic Sciences constantly strives to push the boundaries of medical technology, finding vital answers to personalize and transform healthcare. Define MBC is a liquid biopsy test from Epic Sciences that evaluates key biomarkers such as ER and HER2 status to help create care plans for patients with metastatic breast cancer, all through a blood draw. If you are interested in learning more, please visit definemBC.com. Younger women with breast cancer face unique challenges that their older counterparts do not. The iRise Above Foundation provides young women with targeted, age-appropriate, and integrated health and wellness resources, along with tools that enable them to rise above the residual effects of breast cancer so they can heal and live well. iRise connects young women with breast cancer to a community of like-minded thrivers with the same goals. Go to iriseabovefoundation.org for more information. You are tuned in to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Michelle Beck at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Thanks for staying with us. I'm Michelle Beck, and my guest is Michelle Cherie Cruz, and we are talking about all things estate planning and why it is so important for everyone, no matter your stage or age of life. So, Michelle Cherie, before break, you mentioned a funny story, and I'm guessing that alludes to a guardianship panel or something of that nature. So, please share. It does. So, the holidays are right around the corner, right? And so, another question that I often get asked is, should we reach out to the people that we named? for all these roles and responsibilities before we do estate planning to get their permission. And I said, you know, that's lovely of you to consider that because not all people do. And more often than not, people come to see me and they name people and they're like, do I have to tell them? <laughs> so I tell them this story. So the holidays are coming up. My husband's the youngest of four. We had come up to Oregon. I was working at Anderson Consulting for the first time. And my family and his family were in this great room in Hillsboro. My sister-in-law and brother-in-law were having Thanksgiving Day dinner and had one of our siblings stand up and they get up to the front of the room and they go, ding, 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 we have an announcement. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, so-and-so is pregnant with their fourth. He says, we've done a will. And all eyes go down. Nobody's making eye contact. <laughs> From a psychosocial standpoint, it's kind of interesting. Do you think that if you just look Michelle in the eye, Michelle is automatically going to give you her kid? Probably not. You're probably thinking, oh, she's just making this announcement because she's already spoken to some other guest 
at the dinner tonight. And we're going to just thank them so much for taking on this ever so important role. My husband's sitting to my right. He reaches underneath the table and he squeezes my knee like, oh, my God, get ready for it. And like, get it right off. We're going to be fine. We were the only people in that room that did not have children of our own. We did not live next to this couple. I'm traveling all the time for Anderson. He just started his own business. So I'm looking up and looking pretty darn relaxed. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, who are you going to choose? Michelle's obviously a great choice. 99% of the people that are probably here today are better choices than Stephen and I would have been as a potential guardian at the time. He goes, we have nominated, and you could literally hear a pin drop. <laughs> he said, Michelle, Shree, and Steve. And everybody's like, oh, that's a great choice. That's a great choice. And they're downing the wine like nobody's business. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And my husband looks at me and goes, told you. I'm like, <laughs> so I'm helping the sister-in-law who's hosting at the house to bring the dishes into the kitchen. All these people are coming up to me saying, congratulations. Congratulations. You've been right. chosen. Exactly. And so I go into the kitchen and that brother-in-law follows me. He taps me on the shoulder. He goes, you're okay with being guardian for the kids, right? And what are you going to tell your brother-in-law at Thanksgiving Day dinner? Yeah, no, you I can't say no. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. Kind of didn't want his kids. I didn't, you know, I couldn't even imagine myself being a parent at that time. So I start ticking off all the reasons I think that we're abysmal. So he goes, oh, no, no, no. We put a lot of thought into it. We think you and Stephen are going to be great guardian parents. And I said, really? And he goes, and don't worry, they're not going to be a burden. Now, my kids are 24 and 22, so this is more than 24 years ago. I said, how so? And he says, they come with a million dollars of life insurance, and he walks out of the kitchen. (laughs) My other sister-in-law, not his wife, is at the kitchen counter, and she's putting stuff down the disposal. And I look at my sister-in-law, and I said, oh, my gosh, did you hear what just went down? And there's no response. I go, seriously, a million dollars of life insurance? That's not going to cover my therapy. (laughs) Way more than a million dollars of life insurance. (laughs) Well, again, my sister-in-law doesn't respond. And so finally I tap her on the shoulder and she turns around. She goes, so, yeah, we need to talk. And I said, well, why? She says she and her husband had just done a will as well. And she also named Stephen and I as guardian for her two children. So I'm like, I'll be back. So I grab my husband in the dining room and he gives me this big hug. And he goes, my, 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 don't you look good for having had three children? I said, if you think I look good at three, I have five. Five. He goes, how do you figure? And I tell him. He asked around if by the end of the evening, we had 13. <laughs> Every single one of our siblings named my husband and I as potential guardians. And why do I tell you this story? I tell you the stories because my hope is that all the people that you're going to name for all these roles will be overjoyed to be your people. But you want to make sure that they have an out, right? So if you're going to name somebody as a potential guardian, you're going to name somebody as that personal representative to close down your state. You're going to name somebody as that trustee to manage money on behalf of minor kids until like they're 26 or 28. There's always this possibility that they want the job. They just can't do the job or they never wanted the job to begin with. So always think of backup people if you can. Here in Oregon, the only document that needs to have somebody agree to be that person is that back wheel document called an advanced directive. That's where you need your healthcare agents to sign and date the documents for that document to be valid. Perfect. Well, that was so much good information. So I'll, it's like, check first. This is yeah. not a place where you ask for forgiveness instead of permission. You check first. Yeah, check now, first. Keep it very general. So say, you know, I, I came to a really amazing Voice America podcast hosted by Breast Friends and Michelle Beck. And there was this attorney there and she was talking about these different categories of people. And there's this category of person called a personal representative. Would you be comfortable with me listing you in that category? Don't mm-hmm. say I've named you. 
just say, would you be willing to be listed? Because you may change your mind or change the order at some later date. And But you can always change these. As time goes Absolutely. on, you can redraft and do that. Personal will can be redrafted. Not redrafted, just made small modifications. And also, too, when you have children that are growing and that may age over 18, I know you can set up trusts in in your in your will or your revocable trust that for your children to have disbursements at different ages and for tax planning. How does that work? Because like I have children from a blended family, my you know my stepchildren and my son, and different finances have come in from different places that will go to different kids. And how does that normally work? Okay, again, that's a lot. Various layers. <laughs> various layers. So yes, you can set up a trust. For minor children in a will and in a revocable trust. So what does that say? Kind of look back to where you were when you were 18. If somebody said to you as you're going off to university, guess what, Michelle, you're now a millionaire. Would you actually stay at university? Would you still make the best decisions possible? Would you manage that money? Would you put money away for retirement? Probably unlikely. So I think it's maybe a little bit better then instead of giving an outright distribution to a child at the age of 18, have that money put into a account called a trust account for them, naming somebody called a trustee to manage that money on their behalf. They always have access to the money. They just have to mother may I to the trustee to explain what they want to use the money for. I'd like to do a year abroad program. I need to buy a new car. I need orthodontia. I'm going to start my own business. And instead of being able to automatically access that money, they have to explain to somebody what they want the money used for. You're also able with a testamentary trust to divide it at a certain age. So let's say, for example, you have three children. It might initially be in something called a pot trust where the trustee is writing checks for kids and maybe one kid needs orthodontic, but the other one doesn't. That doesn't mean that all the children get a credit of $5,000 or $6,500. It's just the money that needs to be spent. Meanwhile, another child, maybe their team goes to nationals. And that's $3,500. That doesn't mean that the other two children get a credit of $3,500. Mm-hmm. The thing is, unless you have triplets, they're all probably going to go off to university at different times. So what I recommend that you do is you divide the trust, maybe when your ch- oldest child is 18, into separate shared trusts for each of the children. The trusts remain available to them until each of them turn the age of 28. But instead of each of the three children having access to the 100%, they get access to the proportionate one-third. And then what we do is we incentivize them. We say, you know, when you turn 26, assuming you're mature enough to manage money on your own, it's in your best interest. You don't have a gambling addiction. It doesn't affect the financial aid package. You're not about to get divorced. And you've graduated from college. We might give you some of the money from your trust, maybe the interest that your separate share trust has earned. On your 26th and 27th birthday, when you're turned 28, you get whatever's left over. But... What you beautifully built into your inquiry was, is it anything different if you're what's called a blended family? And for those of you who don't know what a blended family means, it means that one or both of you came into this new union with children outside the union. So maybe Michelle has two children from outside this current relationship, and maybe her husband has one. And the question becomes, if you leave your entire estate to your spouse, Is that spouse going to still leave children, leave money to your two children from a previous relationship? Are they obligated to do so? How do you ensure that if you want to give money to your surviving spouse, that they don't cut out your children from a previous relationship? And there's lots of ways to do it. But one of the most successful ways of doing it is to do that third behind door number three, this thing called a revocable trust. 
And with a revocable trust, what you can do is you can earmark certain assets that you either want to give outright to trust for those two children from the previous relationship, whether they're minors or they're adults. Or two, what you can do is you can give your surviving spouse a life estate in those assets. Say during your lifetime, you can use the house, you can use these checking accounts. But when you pass away, we both agree this is how it's going to get divided. And that's definitely better suited if you're a blended family to use a revocable trust than to do a will because there's a better ability for you to control those assets and to kind of finesse how those distributions are made and when and to have some backup plan. So if your spouse remarries or passes away before a certain age or no one no longer wants to live in that house, you can have a what if scenario built into that document. Completely makes sense. Now let's switch gears. What if you're a single person planning your estate? What considerations do you have to take into that point with no 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 spouse, no children? I think all the same considerations, right? So when I have a single person that comes into my practice, the first thing I want them to do is, again, those backwheeling capacity documents. Because you don't have anybody under that roof who's capable of making those medicals and financial decisions and transmitting medical records electronically. But even if you're single, you might own a piece of real estate. And if you own a piece of real estate, that's something we really haven't gotten into, is how does property pass between individuals Does it through a contract? Is it through beneficiary designation? Is it through legal documents? When you own a home and you're the only person on title to that house, when you pass away, that home is sitting out there with nobody who owns it. And because of that, even if you have a will, that personal representative has to go to the court, say there's this house out here, nobody's on title to that house, I now need to follow the instructions as well and either have the house retitled to the person that was so named in the will or the house sold and the proceeds divided pursuant to the will wishes. With a revocable trust, even if you're single, you can avoid that probate process for the house. So even if you're married or single, if you own real estate, usually a revocable trust is a better idea. I'm less concerned when there's two owners on a house because I've had very few couples pass away. So if one person passes away and the other a surviving spouse is still on title or partner is still on title to the house, that house will have ownership. The issue is, is if both of them passes away, again, like that single individual, we have an asset out there that has no ownership with it. The other issue that comes up with a single individual are my single individuals that have kids, right? And they may have shared custody, but they might also have sole custody. And the concern is, is if they have custody of a child, and their child is a minor, and they go to live with their ex, they might not want to give their ex carte blanche access to all the assets that they personally own, right? So they might want to say, you know what, you can be guardian for our minor child, but I want to make sure that my sister ends up being the trustee of a trust I created for our minor child. You still have access to that money to raise our child, but instead of you having undiscredited access to that money, you're going to have to explain to my sister what you need the money for and also to get a reporting on an annual basis so we can make sure that, one, I have somebody other than you being involved with raising our joint child, but two, that there's some oversight on the money management. Perfect. There's so much in it. I, the way you explain it, it actually all makes sense. So I appreciate that. I want to jump over. Um, we only have a few more minutes left to something you had mentioned a few times, digital assets, because until I met you, I had never heard of that. So what is that and why are they so important? Uh, thank you. They're so important because COVID, right? We live more virtually than we do physically, right? In days gone by, when our parents passed away, we could probably pull out a file cabinet 
or a drawer and we would see bank statements. We might see copies of life insurance policies. We might even say, dare I say, a checkbook. (laughs) I still have one. I know. Good for you. You put it in your time capsule when we're done. So people will have things like that, right? Now it's all on our computer. And it begs the question that if you became incapacitated or passed away, if you want somebody to be able to stand in your shoes for wherever you live on the World Wide Web, your virtual you, or you pass away and you don't want to see that Facebook account still open or that one, two, three greeting card happening, or you want to be able to download those pictures from the cloud, if you have documents stored on the cloud, if you have voicemails that you want to continue to listen to, you have social media that you want to have access to, who has that permission and how do they know how to log in as you? That's a whole other topic that we can talk about sometime. But if anybody here is interested in a summary on what are digital assets and how you can incorporate in your estate plan, let Michelle or I know and I'd be happy to send you that memo. Well, Michelle Cherie, you have given us so much wonderful information today, and I greatly appreciate you being here. Listeners, there is so much more. So if you are in Oregon and are interested in connecting with Michelle Cherie, how do they get in touch with you? Well, thank you. So my website is www.crusslaw.com, so K-R-U-S-S-L-A-W.com, or you can give me a ring anytime. I am the type of attorney that always answers their phone. Uh, phone number is 503-490-4020, or you can pop me an email at michelle-sharie, S-H-A-R-I, at crestlaw.com. And I apologize, Michelle Cherie Cress. I will know that forever. I can't believe I didn't I didn't have that right. So I apologize. So <laughs> listeners, believe me, if you are in Oregon and want this to be an easy process, please go speak to Michelle Cherie Cress at CressLaw.com. So Michelle Cherie, again, thank you so much for being here. It has been my pleasure to have you on. And I um I know that it's been very informative because for me it was great. Thank you so much. Thanks for your kind words and thank you for having me. Yes. So listeners, if you or a loved one need our services, please go to breastfriends.org. Check out patient programs. If you'd like to donate, you can do so on our website or by texting BF Radio to 41444. We are available on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel on all the major podcast platforms, or you can watch us on the Breast Friends YouTube channel. And we will be back next week. And until then, remember, we rise by lifting each other. Thank you for listening to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. Please join Michelle Beck again next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We rise by lifting each other.